Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. And that's the point of the program is to allow developers to do multiple projects instead of all of their money and all of their resources into one project. Hey, Solar Warriors, I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Welcome to season three of Suncast and episode 102. And today is Tactical Tuesday, a short form conversation with subject matter experts designed to give you practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business or career. If you're curious about how to scale up your project development activity without breaking the bank, today's episode is for you. So get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. If you find yourself developing solar projects, not just in the U.S., but really anywhere, and still feeling like you're missing a few core components, maybe it's that checklist of exactly how to get from A to Z. Maybe it's the additional capital tranche to go after more than one project in parallel rather than in series. You're going to really enjoy today's Tactical Tuesday with my friend Mike De La Gala. Mike is the founder and managing partner of DG Energy Partners, and he leads the finance and advisory groups for developing solar projects. Mike has been financing and advising in clean energy and renewables since 2008. And we've known each other since way back in the day when I was at Trina. He's structured north of $200 million worth of deals in the distributed generation space. And arguably the ticket size for DGEP today is increasingly getting larger. And we'll dig into why that's true. He hails from New York and lives in San Francisco and joins us today to talk about the secrets and tactics and checklists and ways to execute project development when you are budget and human resources light. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Nico. One of the things that you just discussed was how developers often run into these markets, eyes wide open, ready to set the world on fire. Maybe they're coming out of retail experience or real estate experience or maybe energy trading, and they've got some insight, some local knowledge, maybe access to land or contacts, but they're still missing something to be able to fully develop a project. That's often where you guys get brought in. Can you just give me an idea of what a typical project or portfolio looks like that you guys get brought into and how you can help as DGEP someone who is a an early or maybe a mid-stage developer, and I mean from an education perspective, really take their work to the next level? Sure. That is a space we are concentrating on. So it would be an early stage development to mid-stage development. Typically, we, we are moving earlier and earlier. We call it binary stage development. So basically, after site control, we start to get interested. 
And usually the first two things that happen are site control and interconnection. And most of the programs today are kind of, even if they're small scale, they're kind of moving away from the DG concept behind the meter, selling power to schools. So like Massachusetts is now doing a smart program where it's kind of like their, their net metering program, but they're just getting paid a, a fixed rate from the admin and some community solar components. So basically what we're trying to focus on is early stage site control, interconnection, et cetera. So when we step into the project, we're really looking to deploy early stage capital. We want to deploy that capital from there all the way until notice to proceed and or through construction as required. Most of our exits are occurring at pre-NTP or at NTP. And so in addition to deploying the capital, we have a, a staff here that has been developing projects since together since 2014. And Sean and I have been developing and structuring financing projects together since 2011. So we're trying to deploy that expertise into getting these projects to the finish line. And so, you know, some of it is kind of developer education, but a lot of it is these guys know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly how to do it. They just need some more resources, both human and capital. And can we kind of like to fit both boxes, meaning the experienced developer and the developer who probably needs a little bit of uh, help getting it over the finish line just from an experience perspective. So I want to touch on that experience perspective because clearly as we begin to expand, I mean, I'll, I'll make an analog one of the, or an analogy here. One of the things that we see in the residential space is a lot of folks that realize, oh, I can actually go and develop a residential portfolio of projects and then partner with a Sunworks who is an installer and they'll bring in financing. They'll install it and give me a project commission, if you will, once they get the project on the books and, they, and then they start getting revenues. Is your model similar, only focused on a certain size or step higher? No, I mean, there's some similarities there. Basically, our approach is if a developer brings us an asset, it's that they've come to a point in their development where the checks are starting to get larger. Sometimes it happens earlier on in development. Sometimes it happens later, whether it's deposit driven or program driven and the checks start getting uh, larger and more frequent. So usually by that point, they realize that they're probably capital constrained. If they're not capital constrained, you know, across their entire portfolio, they might be in a certain couple deals and they'd rather deploy that across the rest of the portfolio. So if they have to pick and choose, to develop these, you know, call it five assets versus the 10 that they're working on, they might need to take on additional capital and additional resources. So we step in and we generally, our first move is to, after we've due diligence to deal and we get into contract with these folks, our first move is to reimburse them for the tangible expenses that they've incurred to date. So at the point of when we get involved, they'll have zero financial risk. So they have no more capital at risk. They have the work and the time and the effort that they put in to get it there. And let's say it costs them a couple hundred thousand dollars to get there. Our first check is 200 grand to them. And then moving forward, every contract that comes to pass will be contracted directly with us. So the surveyor and the various engineers will place the deposits directly with the utility or the program administrator or whomever. And, and so going forward, they have really nothing to do except the, the boots on the ground development stuff. So we want to say that we want to keep them focused on dealing with the landlord, keep them focused on dealing with the engineers. So we'll contract with the engineers and we'll pay the engineers, but they, the developer, will continue to work with the engineers, make sure that they're hitting their milestones and getting the work that we need to get the project to exit, which, like I said, is typically NTP or just shy of. Yeah. And just for those who aren't familiar, NTP is notice to proceed, which is the parlance that is used from 
financing side to tell an engineer or the EPC that it's, it's time to get going. Here's some, we're ready to roll capital to build the project. It sounds to me like what's driving the developer's need for capital is they are running into different markets, have different size requirements, but they're running into deposits and whatnot that are stretching their pocketbook. They also are perhaps running into a risk (laughs) threshold where they want to take some capital off the table and need a bigger capital partner because they recognize they're not going to be able to stroke the checks that they need to stroke. It sounds to me like you then become the owner of the project It limits their upside, they're no longer owners of this project, and you're now going to pay them a developer fee based on milestones completed? We do own the project, but there's a revenue sharing upon exit. So, you know, we'll have some minimum return hurdles within any asset. And like I said, we we consider this to be binary transactions. So even when we pay you the 200000 that you've incurred to date, we assume that there's still until you know, we get to a, a certain point where there's there's some sort of certainty in the project. We assume that that 200000 and every dollar we spend after that could go to zero. So that's what I mean by binary. Right. It's either, either going to be worth something or it's going to be worth zero. Uh, and obviously something is, is <laughs> it, uh, it takes lots of different forms, but obviously we're trying to make a return on our invested capital. So yes, we do own the asset. We engage in a development services agreement with the originator, the original developer, and then they are compensated via that services agreement based solely on revenue sharing. So if we sell it for 10 cents or 20 cents or we sell a turnkey price for you know $2 or whatever it is, they're along for that ride. So they're not pigeonholed to some fee that, that I deem acceptable for them as a developer. We want them to come along for the ride and share in the upside with us. But we do have to take control of the asset in order to start financing the entirety of the asset. Mike, I'd love to hear, because you go through this process of due diligence, you're vetting developers the same way they're vetting you. What are some of the red flags for you that throw projects out of the loop of consideration? What are some red flags that you see that typically represent risk, but that you feel like you can button up, i.e. you bring that level of expertise and you know, you kind of see that opportunity as a place where you can add value. You know, each project's different as well as you know, but I'd say the the big thing for us, since we're getting involved so early, which is really just site control, from there, I don't even, even if you have a site control, if you have an option, you know, let's call it a two-year option on a lease that's going to be 25 or 35 or 40 years or whatever you know, that price valuation of that particular lease still doesn't really mean so much to me because there's so many other moving parts within that asset that I have to sort out to even understand if that lease makes sense or not. I mean, the rate of that lease makes sense or not. So at our early stage, it's really how robust is the lease? How firm are we inside control? And how far are we basically our proximity to point of interconnection? So those are the two big things. And if, and if we can kind of check those boxes, the rest we have to go into, like, where are we? Are we in Illinois? What does this program look like? So if we're in Illinois, then we have a community solar aspect. And then we have to, we know that one of the risks is aggregating all of these community off takers. And, and what does that look like? And what does that cost? And, you know, not dissimilar program in Massachusetts where you have that community component. Some of the larger scale stuff that we're looking at we have to identify mineral rights owners. So there's, there's, there's the surface land owner and then there's the, the mineral rights, like the drilling underground owners. Uh, sometimes they're the same, sometimes they're not. So, you know, each project has the same thing. It's, and we don't intend to know 
every single box that needs to get checked for that specific project. We do want to learn a bit of that from the developer if they have that experience, if they have that knowledge. But basically, once we get involved, we then turn the deal on its head and look for all this stuff. We make sure that we do or we don't need mineral rights. We make sure that we do or don't need zoning variants or we do or we don't need special permits. And we kind of run that, like how much is it going to cost to clear the land if there's any land clearing? Where in Massachusetts are we dealing? What's underground? Are we dealing with a ballast system? That's going to put some cost on us. Is it going to be a half a million dollars to clear this land for a five megawatt project or is it going to be three million dollars to clear the land? Is the wood that we chop down worth anything to anybody? You know, so there's it's uh, it's hard to kind of say in, in one instance what exactly is needed but we feel like we've been through we've developed projects in the northeast and the southeast and california and the pacific northwest so we have a a good understanding of what it takes to build an asset in the general region obviously site by site is very specific but we are looking to kind of share that experience with the developer and say hey listen maybe you've thought of this maybe you haven't if you haven't here's what we think and we have some experts on staff or under contract consulting agreements that we work with so you know transmission experts and legal experts and title work and all that stuff. So that's the type of stuff we're trying to bring to the project. I know you're listening to this episode because you're tired of doing things the old way and looking for a new approach. And that is precisely why my friends at CPS America, aka Chint Power Systems, have agreed to help make this fresh content possible for you. See, they believe in the power of change and the importance of trying something before others catch on. They are the U.S. market share leader of three-phase string inverters, pioneering that approach since before it was cool. With over two gigawatts shipped in America, Chint's feature-rich, high-performance inverters and its nimble service team are ahead of the pack, just like you. If you'd like to find out what CPS can do for your CNI and utility business, reach out to me for an intro, nico at mysuncast.com. Or you can reach out to them directly and just let them know you heard it here on Suncast. I love it. You've got this expertise that you bring as a project filter from experience, but you've also got a bench of experts that you can tap that perhaps for one reason or another, the developer simply hasn't developed yet in their process and in the timing of their getting into this industry. I'd be curious to know, and I'm sure listeners are as well, if you'd be willing to discuss the typical value of a developer fee, what should a developer be expecting to see if they're engaging it with an, an agency like yours or an organization like yours that brings this type of leverage for them? Again, deal by deal. But generally speaking, our, our program is, you know, if we're putting money out the door, and like I said, this is early stage investment. So we're looking after our return, we have a, what we think is a pretty generous 50-50 sharing in revenue after we get our return back. And our return based on our deployed capital, which is, the, again, using the same example from earlier, the 200000 that we paid to that developer for uh, their initial uh, cost incurred. And then, you know, every legal bill, every engineering bill, every deposit, et cetera. And that stuff mounts up over time. And so that's our invested capital. And then we get a return on our invested capital. Once we reach that return, and there's a waterfall that goes probably a little too in-depth for a phone call. But once we get through the waterfall, the developer and our development group share in that return. And we like it this way, and most developers like it this way, because our interests are totally aligned. So it's not just me, you know, trying to sell this for as much money as possible, and they only get some fixed rate of, I don't know, 10 cents, 20 cents, 30 cents, whatever the number is. We're both incentivized, you know, to develop this project together, and we're meant to, you know, 
pay the bills. Like I said, they're the boots on the ground. They have the relationships with the lander. They have the relationships with the engineers and the local folks. And to the extent that we can add to those relationships with our local expertise, we will do that. But we're both incentivized to maximize profit by developing a good project and selling that to a good partner upon exit. Very cool. So the developer effectively gets to participate in the upside. And to be clear, you're not in the asset ownership long-term game that a NextEra or a Synetics or a Clinera is participating in. Those are typically the folks that you're selling to or other types of institutional investors. Whereas those types of buyers don't want a carried interest. They wouldn't want you in the deal no more than they want the developer in the deal. This gives the developer a way to hedge their bets, take some capital off the table and still share in the upside of the asset sale. That's right. And so, and what we think the the value add uh, there for, you know, when working with us is those NTB buyers that you mentioned, those guys, uh, those folks and others are moving further and further down the development chain. So, you know, we haven't run into them in the, just the site control phase of development, but, you know, they're probably, they're usually pre-impact study. So they're moving further and further down the development chain. And so, you know, there obviously is an option for a developer to sell that to that long-term owner much earlier than NTP. But the problem there is that you're stuck with that owner. So what, what we're trying to do is deploy that capital even earlier than, than that, you know, would be NTP buyer and then maximize profit by creating a, a competitive like NTP exit. So we're getting, you know, the best five prices from the market and we're looking to maximize that sharing for both us and the developer. So it sounds to me that like with your model, at least, whether you're doing a community solar project or a large utility scale project is not the particular driver for DGEP on how you prioritize, how you invest. So could you maybe help the listener understand how do investors like yourself target specific markets? What are you filtering for? What are you looking for in a good partner? Sure. Well, I think the last bit of your question is exactly what we're looking for is we're looking for a quality partner first before we even look at the asset and the asset means anything to us. Because if the asset is good, we are going to be working with with this developer for and they're going to be working with us for the next no less than six months, as many as, you know, 18 months, depending on the size of the asset or the number of assets or market, et cetera, all that stuff. So that is certainly number one. Number two, when we're, we're adjusting stuff, I mean, you meant you touched on ground mount versus rooftop. Each of these components have their own merit. And so when we're doing our initial due diligence of a project and, and looking at something for the first time, it's very topical stuff. Are we familiar with this program? Have we done anything in this program in this state? Is this a new program? Is it a new state? How do we feel about the land and its proximity to point of interconnection? And, and if that starts bringing it together, then we know that we have an asset with enough room. And by that, I mean, is there enough profit at the end for this deal to make sense for both the developer and us as the owner to do together. And so, you know, being finance guys and and Sean is really the expert in this, we'll have to make some assumptions because it's very, very early stage. But what we're aiming for is what we think totally built, constructed asset, you know, at COD, what is this thing worth? And how much is it going to cost to get there? And when I say, what is this worth? Somebody's looking for a return. A long-term owner is looking for some sort of annualized return on that asset. Let's say it's 6% or 8%. Let's say it's 8%. So our job is to look at the, the pieces of the puzzle that we have at 
the very early stage, make some assumptions about what's going to happen in the middle stage, then we know basically what the market is going to bear from an exit standpoint. So we basically go from the back of an operating asset all the way to day zero when we just have site control. And so we're looking to maximize that number, thereby maximizing profit for both us and the developer. So whether it's rooftop or ground mount or this state or that state, that's the end goal that we're backing into. And and we'll give the developer an idea of what we think that is. And we'll say, look, it's going to cost, we think the budget is a half a million dollars to finance this deal. And we think we're going to sell it for $3 million for conversation purposes. We get returns, we share, this is what the waterfall looks like. Here's your would be number in the end and it'll take us 12 months to get there. Does that make sense for you? And of course, we need to answer that same question ourselves. In the meantime, they're footing their own bill for food on the table and getting projects taken care of. But you've obviously reimbursed them. So they've got some money that they can put back. Yeah, we will reimburse for, you know, specific direct development expenses. So in even, you know, let's, like I said, they've spent 200 grand, we give them the 200 grand first. So they have zero capital at risk. Going forward, the only expenses that they'll have to bear on their own are basically, you know, kind of like their own overhead. So we're not going to pay like office rent and stuff like that, but they won't have to spend any more development dollars. So they just have to carry their own overhead and then they have direct development expenses are borne by us. Very cool. How do you go about finding these developers? You know, when this is kind of a, a, um, a little bit of a pivot for us because we were owning assets for a couple of years and we still own a handful of assets in Massachusetts and in California. We just kind of pivoted a bit just because we're private equity type money. NTP was getting very competitive, as I'm sure you well know. So lots of people lined up to buy NTP projects with a cheaper cost of capital than, than we had. You know, some of these folks are publicly traded entities and utilities. And so obviously they have access to you know, retail capital that we don't have. And so we had developed all of our projects almost from scratch. So we knew the development cycle. We knew the development routine. And having done it on both coasts, we knew the differences in doing projects and um, one coast versus the other. So initially, when I kind of pivoted into this, there was a lot of trying to get out there and talk to folks. But, you know, and these are the same folks, you know, like you and and the rest of the, the folks that I've known for 10 years. And so I started there and just kind of got the word out to them. And word of mouth. If yeah. it wasn't, yeah, exactly. And if it wasn't for them, they knew somebody who was a fit for this type of product. And then I got to tell you, shy of that, you know, once we first moved into this type of market, it's kind of been unsolicited. So once people hear that there is this type of capital out there, which as far as I can tell, we seem to be the only ones in the earliest stages of, you know, just site control type development. It's really just been unsolicited calls of references or referrals looking for this type of capital. Mike, it sounds like a fantastic opportunity for folks, especially in the early stage, looking from site selection to NTP to really be able to partner with kind of a big brother. I know that you guys aren't the only ones, obviously, in the industry who have capital to deploy in the market, but you certainly have a focus where folks that are trying to figure it out, but maybe need a big brother or folks who have it figured out, but need some additional capital to deploy in those early stages, greenfield, as it were, could and should be reaching out. So how would someone that wanted to take the next step reach out to you? What was the, what's the best way to reach out to Mike? Email is definitely the best. It's Mike at DGEPM.com. And uh, you can find more info about us at dgenergypartners.com. There's a process about how our system works or how our program works with developers and a bunch of information about us and our staff on there as well. 
Very cool. And I'm, I'm sensing the need for a bit more education and explanation around really the anatomy of solar project development. So maybe guys stay tuned, solar warriors, maybe Mike and I might have to sit down and put our heads together when I'm in San Francisco and figure out how to put some resources together for you. Maybe we'll pull together a webinar and I'm guessing you'd be down for that if we put a webinar together to teach folks about more about what you do. Absolutely. I would love to. That sounds great. Awesome. Well, stay tuned, Solar Warriors. We'll try to make that happen. In the meantime, we've enjoyed taking some time to dive down the rabbit hole of early stage project development with you, Mike. Absolutely. My pleasure, Nico. I appreciate it. Well, this might be a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warrior, but it doesn't have to be the end of our hanging out together. And true to my word, I did, in fact, sit down with Mike recently while back in San Francisco, and we are going to do a webinar very soon all about the nitty gritty of how Mike and his team routinely help solar development experts and entrepreneurs scale their project pipeline. If that is interesting to you, would you please join the Suncast mailing list You can do that at mysuncast.com or simply text the word suncast, S-U-N-C-A-S-T, to the number 345345. That's suncast on your phone to the number 345345. Just shoot me a text and we'll make sure to add you to the list. And hey, you'll also get the one-page webinar guide created by the last Tactical Tuesday guest, Paul Grana, as my free gift to you. You probably noticed I'm tinkering around a little bit with different styles and sounds, so let me know what you think of the new intro and outro music. I'll probably take the next 10 to 12 episodes to really figure out how and what I want this new soundscape to be, but I love your feedback, not just about this intro, but about the episode. So would you please leave a rating and review on iTunes or give me a shout out on Twitter at Nico Mayo, N-I-C-O-M-E-O. Hey, since you're still with me, here's a little snippet from the next episode of Suncast. And I mean, I think that is the story of the century. We're going to get past this polarization and bullshit and get on with the task of building a world for our kids. Well, if you didn't recognize him already, that was the voice of well-known and influential solar icon Danny Kennedy, one of the founders of Sungevity and now director of California Clean Energy Fund, where he is catalyzing the next generation of clean energy investment and entrepreneurs. So tune in Thursday for that full episode. And hey, while I still have your attention, I'd like to say thank you once again. The fact that you're still listening means that you truly enjoy what we're putting down here with Suncast. If that's true, would you consider becoming a member of the Suncast Energy Tribe? To all my current tribe members, I wish you much love and great success. And please do stay tuned to our private channels for some updates coming your way very soon. You see, every week now we are getting new members. You can join them. Just go to mysuncast.com forward slash member to see what all the fuss is about. Oh, and don't forget, text SUNCAST to 345-345 and you'll get not only that free webinar guide, but you'll get added to our list so that you can keep in touch and know what's happening within the SUNCAST tribe. I look forward to formally welcoming you into the tribe as well, my friend. And thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.